Hi, I'm Diana. Hi, my name is Tom Mixavon. Hi, my name is Daria McDonald, and I'm a single person. I'm Jonathan Hearn. Uh, as a single person, sometimes people talk to you with pity that you're single. You'll be somewhere and they find out you don't have somebody with you at a party or some sort of gathering, and they're like, oh, that's too bad. You'll meet somebody. One thing that I hear often is people will ask if I'm single, and when I say yes, they'll say, oh, you're too pretty to be single. And I know they're saying it to be nice and to compliment me, but it actually is kind of hurtful because I am single, and it makes me feel like I'm doing something wrong or that there's something wrong with me that I'm still single. So it's just one of those things that I just kind of wish people wouldn't say. When I was going through a divorce, people would say to me, God hates divorce. And that really hurt because I hate it too and was going through a lot of turmoil about going through the divorce. The other thing I get from people is that um, uh, don't worry, it will, it will happen soon. Um, for me, that's, uh, I get angry when people tell me that. At the same time, I get frustrated um, because um, I, I know that already. What I hear a lot from my family or friends is that, oh, you were too good for them or you were better than that person and they're doing it to be helpful and at first I'm like, yeah, you know what, you're right, I am better than that person. But in the end it's just really not helpful because I chose to be with that person and there were feelings that were there. So um, really what I think is more helpful is to just think that we're both two amazing people, both worthy, and that it just was not God's plan. Later on in the process, after I'd been divorced for a while, I would get comments like, we will have to find someone for you. And I thought, we? That sounds like there's some kind of group effort involved. <laughs> um, and I wasn't sure what someone meant. It sounded like a vague person that I could hardly imagine, but um, it made me feel like there was something odd about being single. And even though I know the people meant well, uh, it didn't help me to embrace my singleness and see it as something that was worth celebrating. Another thing I get as a salesperson out interacting with people all the time is um, when I do something nice or say something funny, they'll be like, you're such a catch. I don't know why someone hasn't snatched you up yet. Like it's um, like there's something wrong with it. Like, you know, I can't be fulfilled in my life if I'm alone. And, you know, it, it doesn't really work like that. I can be happy and be single. Well, today we are starting a two-part teaching series on the topic of singleness. And I'm hoping that the need for this series is obvious, but uh, given how rarely most churches, including our own, talk about the topic of singleness, I feel like I need to make a little bit of a case. Uh, statistically speaking, uh, this is an incredibly relevant topic. Uh, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, 53% of the United States population is single. Uh, the, that number surpassed uh, married people in 2014. Uh, in our area, it's slightly lower, but not much. 45% of the population that our church reaches uh, is single. And if you're in DeKalb, it's a little bit higher. It's 65%, mostly because of the presence of NIU in your community. So in some ways, uh, the question shouldn't be, why are we doing two weeks on singleness? It's, why are we doing only two weeks on singleness? Uh, but this is more than just statistics. Uh, we're talking about singleness because God cares deeply about single people. And in his word, he speaks directly to single people about how they can thrive in their singleness for his glory and for his kingdom. And so that's what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks. Now, something really interesting happened when we announced this series was going to be coming up, something I've never encountered before as a preacher. I'm very used to having people uh, give me feedback after I've given a sermon, you know, uh, send me an email, give me a call, have a conversation about something that they're wrestling with that I said. 
But this time, I've actually received more feedback before I even preached one of these sermons than ever I've preached something afterwards. And the question is, why is that? Where's this reaction coming from? Uh, well, for some people who reached out to me, I know that the, what they're doing is they're trying to make sure that I, as a married guy, have a, an accurate perspective of what the single experience is like. And I'm incredibly thankful for that. Uh, I realize how much I'm at a disadvantage when I'm preaching on this subject. Uh, and I know how easy it is for someone to say something really tone deaf when you're talking about somebody else's experience. Uh, anytime I'm talking about something I'm not immediately experiencing myself, uh, I always try to talk to people who are experiencing that so that I can have real stories, real people in mind as I'm speaking. Uh, this time, I actually got to talk to about 30 or 40 single people from within our community, uh, some in focus groups. I did two focus groups with people in our church, uh, and then about a dozen interactions one-on-one -on -one with people who reached out to me, and I didn't even get to talk to all the people that I wanted to. Uh, so before I get too far, I do want to say thank you uh, to everybody who uh, spent some time talking with me. Uh, it's an incredible gift to have you share your story, uh, especially the fact that you guys were so vulnerable about what you shared. Uh, you didn't have to be that open, but you were, and so I consider that a precious gift. Uh, and for those of you who did talk to me, if I screw this up, you can let me know, okay? Uh, you can get back to me if I misrepresent things. Uh, but I don't think that the reason people reacted so strongly just to the topic of this uh, was because they, they want to make sure I had the right perspective. Uh, I think they're also doing it because even just bringing up the subject evokes a lot of pain in people's experience. Think of it like this. Imagine you're going on a week-long hiking trip with some friends. You're going to be walking in the woods each day for hours a day. Uh, and the night before you're about to head out on the trip, you realize you don't have any good shoes. You don't have any hiking boots. So you call up your friend and she says, you know what, don't worry, I got an extra pair. You can borrow that. It'll, it'll be great. Just show up. So the next day you show up and you're about to head out and you try on the shoes and you realize they're a size too small. And they fit, but they, they, they pinch and you think, oh, what am I gonna do? I don't have time to go out and buy a new pair of shoes and they're heading out, so I gotta make a choice. So you decide, well, you know what? I'm just gonna wear them and we're gonna check this out. And at first it's okay, you know? First half of the day, it's, it's all right. But by lunchtime, you know, your feet are getting more sore than they really should be at this point. By the end of the day, your back is sore and you're, you know, it's kind of rubbing in the same place. You're starting to get a blister. And after a few days, it's really getting pretty hard. For, for a lot of people, a lot of single people, the experience of life is a little bit like this. The world is designed for married people. And it's not that single people don't fit. It's just that there are some things that pinch and certain things press that same spot over and over again until it's tender. It's like you're wearing a shoe that's a size too small. It's meant to fit somebody else. And let's imagine that a few days into the camping trip, you are sitting around the fire and you take off your boots and someone looks over and realizes, man, your feet are really sore. That person happens to be a nurse and so he reaches over and says, hey, let me look at that. And as he does, what are you gonna do? You're gonna pull back. You're gonna flinch. Even if he means well, even if he could offer some help, you're gonna not wanna be touched right there. I think that's what's going on right here. Uh, what people have shared with me has a lot of fear and sadness and even anger involved. It's clear that people are tender and they're afraid that some ignorant preacher is going to get up and say something that just makes things worse. I don't blame you if you feel that way. If you're feeling that way, I don't know exactly what to tell you to make you trust me in this moment. But I can tell you this, I hear your pain and I take it really seriously. And I also know that Jesus takes you really seriously too. If you're not so sure about me, I at least would ask you this. Open yourself up to whatever Jesus would like to do. Even if I get things wrong, he might have something to say to you right now. 
Before I get too far, I do want to make a few disclaimers about this series. Uh, first is this. Uh, to all of those of you who are married here, uh, I know that some of you are thinking, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. What am I going to get out of this? Like, do I even need to show up for the next two weeks, you know? And all the single people in the room are like, hmm, tell me more about how difficult this is going to be for you. That sounds so hard. <laughs> Remember this feeling the next time we do a series on marriage, Okay. It's also worth remembering, and this is a little bit more sobering, uh, that more than half of you who are married will be single again. The vows you made said, till death do us part. So even if your marriage doesn't end in divorce, one spouse is going to die before the other, and so one of you is going to be single again. Uh, Not only that, but we've got to keep in mind what Paul tells us in Philippians 2. He says, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but also each of you to the interests of others. As followers of Jesus, we are called to enter into the experience of other people, to embrace their needs and their priorities as our own. This is the way of Jesus. Second disclaimer, I am keenly aware that singleness is not one thing. Among unmarried adults, 63% have never been married, 24% are divorced, 13% are widowed. And the experiences of these three groups are, are very different. Uh, When I can, I'm going to address some of those differences, Uh, but I I do want you to be aware that this is not a series particularly focused on divorce or on losing a spouse, so I'm not going to be able to get too deep into those topics. Uh, With that said, even apart from that, uh, I realize that uh, single people experience their singleness in different ways. Uh, And just like when we're talking uh, about marriage and we bring up, uh, you know, the issue of conflict or infidelity or some other problem that might face a marriage, uh, I don't expect that every single person is going to be wrestling with the things that we're addressing. Uh, So I'm going to be talking a lot about the pain of being single in this message. Uh, And you might say, you know what, I'm totally content. I'm really happy with my singleness. And I say, that's great. But there are others who really need to process through some of this stuff. Third disclaimer is this. Uh, This is not a series about dating or about preparing for marriage. This is one of the mistakes that we often make when we think about singleness. Uh, We think about it as if it were a temporary in-between state of waiting until you're married. But that simply isn't true. Uh, According to the trends, 20 to 25% of adults who are currently single will never be married. Uh, And even though uh, most of the single population will be married at some point in their life, uh, most adults spend over a decade of their life being single. Uh, Half of the single population is over the age of 30. So if we talk about singleness as simply about looking for a spouse or preparing for marriage, uh, we're ignoring most of the experience of the single life. So with those disclaimers in mind, let's jump into our passage for today. We're going to be looking at a passage in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. So if you've got a Bible... Go ahead and turn there with me. Uh, We're going to be jumping into the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having. Uh, Some Pharisees have approached him, and they've asked him to weigh in on a debate that they're having in uh, sort of uh, the circles of Jewish teachers. Uh, Some of them say, you know, uh, it should be really easy to get a divorce, and some people say it should be really hard to get a divorce, and they want to know what Jesus' opinion was. And when Jesus sets a pretty high bar for the criteria for divorce, his disciples react really strongly, and they say, what are you talking about, Jesus? That's so strict. And they make a sarcastic remark, and they they say this. They say, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, well, then it's better not to even get married. Now, to them, that's a joke, because of course you get married in that culture. Everybody did. But Jesus didn't respond to it as a joke. He took it as a serious suggestion. And this is his response. I'm going to warn you, it's a little bit weird. It'll take some unpacking, but this is what he says. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, 
And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. All right, this is going to take some explaining, but I promise this is good news, so let's thank God for it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. From this passage, I want us to see three things uh, that singleness does not mean. Three things that singleness does not mean. Here's the first one. Single does not mean incomplete. Single does not mean incomplete. Uh, Our culture sends a consistent message about this that is summed up by Dean Martin when he's saying, you're nobody till somebody loves you. You're nobody till somebody cares. The world still is the same. You'll never change it. As sure as the stars shine above, you're nobody till somebody loves you. So find yourself somebody to love. This is one of the most pervasive and one of the most damaging lies that our world tells us. And this lie existed in a different form in the ancient world. Uh, Back in the Roman Empire, they were so concerned about having enough men to fill the army that the emperor actually created a tax on unmarried and childless men. Uh, All men who were between 25 and 60 and all women between 20 and 50 were expected to marry. Uh, If you got a divorce, you had to get remarried in six months if you were widowed within a year. Uh, The unmarried people in society, they lost their right to inherit from their parents, so they couldn't have something passed on to them. In Jewish culture, uh, marriage and having children was considered a sacred duty. Uh, One rabbi actually said that someone who remained celibate detracted from the image of God and even committed murder because they weren't trying to procreate and have children. Uh, Men were urged to get married by the age of 18 or 20, and if you got beyond that, people were starting to say, "Are are you fulfilling your duty to God? So in both Jewish and Roman culture, the culture of Jesus' day, for ordinary people, singleness was not a socially or legally acceptable option. But there was one group of people in the ancient world who did refrain from marriage, from sex, and from family, and that was eunuchs. Uh, And this is who Jesus brings up in this passage. Uh, A eunuch is a castrated male. Uh, Most often, as Jesus mentions here, that's because of either a birth defect or because someone uh, deliberately castrated them. Uh, The question is, why would someone do that? Uh, And it's because they were useful. Uh, Eunuchs were employed in royal courts for a couple of reasons. First reason was this. Uh, They they were safe when working with royal women. There was no concern about assault or seduction if they had to uh, tend to the queen or the princess or something like that. Uh, More importantly, though, they could not start a rival dynasty. They could be trusted with a lot of power, a lot of wealth, and because they didn't have children to pass that on to, uh, the, the, the money and the power would stay in the royal family, so they couldn't uh, build up a, a rival dynasty. Now, you might be asking, okay, well, that's interesting, but why did Jesus bring up eunuchs here? Like, we're talking about singleness, we're not talking about castration, that's a little extreme. Um, but here's the thing, uh, Jesus is talking about singleness, not castration as well. Uh, When he talks about people who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom, he's not speaking literally. Although there were a few people in the early church who thought he was literal, and that didn't go so well for them, but we won't make that same mistake, okay? Uh, But he uses the the image for a couple of reasons. One is there there was simply no other category for a a single person in that era. There just wasn't uh, what we have today where people are just, you know, in ordinary life uh, living single. Uh, But the main reason that Jesus brought this up was to challenge the idea that being single was a state to be despised or pitied. For Jews in those days, eunuchs were tragic figures. They were seen as incomplete people. Uh, Physically, that was literally true. But socially, they were also seen as lacking the things that made life worth living, uh, a spouse, children. Uh, They were judged spiritually. 
They, they weren't allowed to enter into the temple. They weren't allowed to be on the ruling council of the Jewish community. In our contemporary culture, we send similar messages sometimes to single people. A message comes out in different ways. Over and over again, our world says, you can't really be fulfilled without romance. Even if it's not as overt as Dean Martin, romantic movies and love songs are very clear. If you don't have a significant other, and especially if you aren't having sex, you're incomplete. Those are part of human fulfillment and you need them. This idea comes up in Christian culture, in the church world as well. And it gets mixed in with this other message that says you can't really be mature without marriage. Popular books and preachers, they, they, they say that marriage is this essential catalyst to spiritual growth. There's a best-selling Christian author who wrote an excellent book on marriage but said this really horrible thing in it. He says, if you want to be free to serve Jesus, there's no question, stay single. But if you want to become more like Jesus, I can't imagine a better thing to do than to get married. Marriage is the preferred route to becoming more like Christ. It's crazy. Even if it's not said that overtly, single people often get the message that you're not a full-fledged adult in the church until you're actually married. And even when singleness is not presented as inferior, it's definitely presented as abnormal. The message comes across, you can't really be normal without a spouse. It's not that single people are doing something wrong or they're unwelcome, but in a thousand small ways, the message gets repeated. You know, you're not quite like the rest of us. Uh, single people pick this up a lot in church where uh, sermon illustrations focus on marriage and family. Uh, most churches, including ours, have lots of ministries to couples and to, to parents. Uh, there tend to be more married people in leadership in churches than single people. And, and it's not that people are doing something uh, sinful or judging or, or whatever, but all these things compound in a way that sets up marriage as the norm and singleness as the deviation, even though half the population is single. Uh, over time, these messages seep into the hearts of single people. Even if they know explicitly they aren't true, they feel in their hearts, well, maybe it is true. Maybe I can't be fulfilled. Maybe I'm not whole. Maybe there is something wrong with me. And so when Jesus brings up eunuchs, he's doing it to deliberately challenge this idea that single people are incomplete or marginal. And he's actually doing it in a way that fulfills a prophecy in Isaiah 56. It's this prophecy about what God will do when he restores his people and his world. Let me read it to you. God says, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. What God is saying is that when his kingdom comes, those who are considered on the outside, on the fringes of society, are going to be brought right into the heartbeat of his new world. And he uses eunuchs as an example. He says in the kingdom, a eunuch's not going to say, you know, I'm just a dry free tree. I have no fruit. I have no children, no offspring. Instead, they're going to be brought right into the temple, into the place where God's presence dwells, the place that they had previously been cut off from. And those who have never given their name in marriage or received a name in marriage are going to be given an everlasting name by God himself. Jesus is deliberately reversing the social stigma that his society put on single and childless people. And we need to do the same thing. It is amazing to me that this even needs to be said, but I need to say it. There is nothing inferior about being single. 
there is nothing inferior about being single. Being single is not a deficiency in a person's character. It's not a spiritual flaw. It's not a curse. It's not a barrier to a fulfilled human life. And the proof of that should be really obvious, guys. Jesus was single, okay? The only perfect, complete human being who ever walked the earth was single. The most human life that was ever lived did not include marriage, sex, or childbearing, which means you don't need any of those things to be complete. Uh, Singleness is not inferior to marriage. In fact, next week we're going to talk about uh, the reasons why it might be better to think of singleness as preferable to marriage. That's the reason why Jesus says the one who can accept this should accept this. But we'll get more into that next week. For now, I just want to say this. Stop treating singleness as a problem to be solved. It's not a problem to be solved. For people who are in a dating relationship or who are married, don't pity your single friends as if they can't be happy until they finally find someone. And if you're single, don't pity yourself as if you'll never be happy until you find someone. By all means, pursue people if you want, but don't do it because you need someone to complete you because you don't. Single does not mean incomplete. Here's the second thing that single does not mean. Single does not mean alone. This is one thing that I heard over and over again as I talked with single people prepping for this. They talked about the experience of being alone and being lonely. What does the Bible actually say about dealing with our loneliness? It's interesting because the Bible doesn't say what we expect it to. It doesn't say, you know, if you're feeling lonely, just get closer to God. Like if you just had a, a tighter relationship with Jesus, that would fulfill all your needs and you wouldn't feel lonely anymore. It doesn't say that. In fact, it says the exact opposite. When God was creating the world and everything was still good, he, he created one thing and he said, you know, this isn't so good right now. It's when he created a single human being, a, a solitary human being. And, and even though Adam had a perfect relationship with God, there was no barrier between him and God. God said, it's not enough. I did not design human beings to have all of their relational needs met just by a relationship with me. They need other people. And so that's why God created more. Here's the question, though. Where does God expect us to look to have our relational needs met? What kind of relationship? The most popular answer in our culture is a romantic relationship. We expect a significant other to complete us and to meet our emotional needs and to take away our loneliness and to fill the emptiness. But here's the thing, that that is simply not realistic. It's more than one person can do. Frankly, if you enter into a relationship like that, if you think a spouse is going to do that for you, it's a recipe for disaster. No marriage can bear that kind of weight. So what is God's solution to our aloneness? It's not marriage and family. It's the church. At one point, Jesus is uh, teaching a group of people, and this is before his family has come around to realizing that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, and his family shows up as he's teaching, and someone in the crowd says, hey, Jesus, you know, your, your mom and your brothers are, are there waiting for you. And, and Jesus responds to them really interestingly. He says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He's saying faith comes before blood. Over and over again, if you read through the New Testament, it says again and again, the church is the first family of Christ followers. It comes before your parents, your kids, your siblings, even your spouse. 
And Jesus, uh, when he is having this conversation with his disciples about the eunuchs, when he's saying this thing, uh, the conversation kind of progresses after a while. And at one point, the disciples say, you know, Jesus, we, we've given up a lot to follow you. Like we've even had some relationships that were broken and, and we've walked away from that because we want to follow you. What, what's in it for us? And this is what Jesus says to them. He says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is Jesus's solution to the problem of being alone. He says you're going to receive a new family, not just in the distant future, but in this age. How does that happen? It happens through the church, the family of God. Now, here's not what I'm suggesting, okay? I am not suggesting that if you just get more involved in church, it will take away your desire to be married, you know? Like, I don't need a husband. I got my community group, you know? It's like, we're just going to put that on t-shirts now. It's going to be great. <laughs> you can be rooted in a great church community and still really want to get married, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. What I am saying, though, is that you don't need a spouse to have all your relational needs met, your core relational needs met. I believe that every person has been built to be known, to be wanted, and to be enjoyed. We need people to know us, like the real us, no hiding. We need people to want us, to pursue us, to seek us out. We need people to enjoy us, to, to like us, to delight in who we are. That, that, that's not just a want, that's a need. We are made with that. And in our culture, we, we assume that the only way to get those particular needs met is through a romantic relationship, but it's not true. According to the Bible, the Christian community is the place where those needs are to be met. So here's my question. What would it be like? What would it be like if the church, if our church was a place where every person was known and wanted and enjoyed. How amazing would that be? Well, let's be honest though, for a lot of single people, for a lot of people, church doesn't feel that way. Uh, one single person I talked to said, you know, sometimes it feels a lot like Noah's Ark, you know, everybody's kind of going in two by two, and we're still on the outside as the rain starts pouring. It, it happens a, a lot of times with groups of friends, people are single, and then they start to get married, and, and the, the married friends start to withdraw from their single friends. I heard multiple stories from different people talking about instances in their life where they found out that their friends were hanging out without them because it was just a group of married people and they said, we're not gonna invite our single friend because we don't want our single friend to feel uncomfortable being with us, being alone. You catch that? The idea is even though you're hanging out with a group of friends because you don't have a significant other, you're gonna be alone, you're gonna be by yourself. Now, it might've been true that uh, their, their single friend might've felt weird kind of hanging out with a bunch of couples, but here's the thing. Wouldn't it be better for us to err on the side of including people rather than deciding for people that they don't wanna hang out? Uh, actually, one person said, you know what I love it is when my friends invite me over knowing that I'm gonna decline sometimes and say, you know what, I just don't wanna hang out with a bunch of couples, but I'm always welcome to be included and they want me there. Uh, a lot of times this happens when people get divorced or their spouse dies. At first, uh, their friends gather really close around them, but pretty soon they start to get more and more distant. It's almost as if people think that divorce or widowhood is going to be contagious. There's a statistic, and it's really sad, uh, that most widows lose 75% of their relationships within the first few years after their spouse has died. I don't know how that is calculated, but I know that if you talk to some of the widows and widowers around here, they're going to say, that is exactly true in my life. Now, of course, it isn't always a one-way thing. So it's not just married people bailing on single people. Sometimes single people pull themselves out because they just you know, don't want to deal with the feelings that come up. 
But for whatever reason, it happens. Single people and married people tend to live in separate worlds. Now, sometimes it's okay. You gotta be with people who have similar life experiences sometimes. And that's why we do marriage ministry and single ministry around here. But if that separation is across the board, it's a serious problem. So the question is, what do we do to change that as a church? Uh, Let me offer a few suggestions. First is this, we need to make some new friends. Friends who are not in the same life circumstance as us. If you only have single friends or you only have married friends, do something to change that. It could be as simple as when you're talking with people in your zone and you meet someone and they're in a different situation of life than you, not writing them off as a potential friend. You push through the awkwardness, push through some of the social norms there and get to know someone who isn't in the same situation as you. Second suggestion, open up your group. Open up your group. Uh, The vast majority of people who call call Christ Community Church home are in community groups. This is the main way that people experience belonging uh, within a large church in a a smaller group setting. Uh, Our community groups actually come in different varieties. We've got men's groups, we've got women's groups, we've got groups for married couples, and we've got mixed groups where uh, both married and single people can be involved. Now, Obviously, we think that it's good for couples to be together with each other. Uh, That's why we have couples groups. But I'd like to challenge you. Uh, If you are in a couples group and you've been in it for a while, maybe you should take up the idea of opening it up and becoming a mixed group, inviting some people in in a different situation into your group. Or or if you're in a men's or women's group and everybody in your group is married or everybody in your group is in a, a similar family situation, maybe you invite in some people who aren't. Or if you're in a group where it's just single people, would you consider inviting in some married couples? Here's the third idea. Show affection. Show affection. Uh, There is this command in the New Testament uh, that is really weird. It comes up five different times in five different books. It is a favorite of teenagers and youth groups everywhere. And it's this one. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You ever run, run across that before? You're like, how do, I, how do I apply this? Like, am I supposed to apply this? Is it, am I being disobedient that I haven't done this? Um, I actually have a friend. This is a, an aside here. Okay, I have a friend who went to a church for the first time. And um, when they had the so, sort of like turn and greet, say hello to someone sitting next to you thing, the, the pastor said, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, she was like, oh, I guess they do that here. So she turned and planted one on the guy next to her. And she looked around and realized they're all just, you know, talking about their weekend and shaking hands. Never went back to that church, okay? Um, What's the deal uh, with this command, okay? What you need to know is in that culture, uh, like many cultures today, the way you greet family is with a kiss on on the cheek or on the lips. So what the New Testament authors are saying is when followers of Jesus get together, we should greet one another with the same affection that we show to family. Now think, in your own family context, in our own culture, how do you greet a brother or a sister? How do you interact with a mother or a father or a grandparent? Do you hug? Is it a kiss on the cheek? Is it an arm around the shoulder? What do you do? This is how we should show our love to our siblings and parents and grandparents in the faith. And how is this relevant for singleness? Uh, It's because I heard again and again from single people that one of the things that can be so hard is the lack of physical contact. Uh, We live in a world where non-sexual touch is rare. And if you're single and you don't have children, there's a good chance that you don't get touched as much as you need to be. And that shouldn't be the case among followers of Jesus. Now, hear me loud and clear about this one. This is not an excuse for uninvited touch, okay? This is not about finding the nearest single person around you and just smothering them, all right? Or hugging a random Christian that you don't really know that well. Uh, This is about people you know well and who want to be touched. 
Uh, Even among family, you don't have the same kind of touch with a second cousin at a family reunion as you do with your little brother or your mom. Uh, And it certainly rules out anything sexual or lewd, okay? Uh, If it would be weird to do with your mom, don't do it with someone in your community group. Got it? (laughs) Fourth tip, share your home. Share your home. Here's the kind of thing that I'm imagining. I am imagining people inviting each other over for dinner. Married people inviting single people, single people inviting married people, people with kids inviting people without kids and vice versa to eat meals together. And I'm not talking about a set out the china, deep clean your house, make grandma's dessert recipe kind of dinner. I'm talking about we're eating leftovers and yesterday's dishes are still in the sink kind of dinner. I'm talking about scruffy hospitality where people get invited into your life the way your life actually is. And this is important because it's what you do for family. When my sister randomly stops by, I don't go into a flurry of of cleaning the house. And it's better for that because we're comfortable with each other that way. And I'm talking about more than sharing meals too. It's about sharing the ordinary moments in your family's life. It's about watching the same TV show together that you would watch separately. It's about running errands or doing home projects together. It's about standing around the kitchen and sharing those stories from your day that no one really cares about except for your family. It's about a spare key, about refrigerator rights. I firmly believe that God gave us family for the same reason that he gives us money, so that we would share it generously with other people. But what would happen if it were normal for families to invite a single mom or a widow to live with them? What if it were normal for single friends to move in together, not just to be roommates, but to be partners in pursuing Jesus? Uh, syncing up the rhythms of their life so that they could share meals and they could pray together and they could worship together as a household? What if it was really normal for single adults to partner with parents to help raise their kids, Uh, reading bedtime stories and giving rides to piano lessons and teaching them how to ride a bike? I I would love for us to expand our imagination about what community looks like outside the walls of the church and the programming of the church. Those things are good, but we've got to get beyond that. Uh, Let me read you a quote uh, from a guy named Scott Sauls. Scott is actually going to be one of our guest speakers during our summer series in July. Uh, He wrote a, a great book called Befriend, and this is what he says. What if the church became the first place that people went looking for family? What if the church were filled with unmarried people but had no single people because unmarried people were as family to each other and surrogate brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters to the rest of the church? What if the church were the place where no parent felt the burden of having to raise children alone and where every child had hundreds of mothers and fathers and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and big sisters and brothers? What if it were true that God sets the lonely in families? What if the church were the place where anyone in the world could find refuge and solace from the age-old malediction that it is not good to be alone? This is exactly what God intended for the church to be. Want to pursue that together? Last thing, that singleness does not mean. Single does not mean forsaken. Does not mean forsaken. Uh, Let let me share some quotes from people in our church, things that I heard people say. One person said, you know, my friends keep passing these life markers that I expected to have passed by now, and I I feel like I keep getting left behind. Uh, Another person said, every time a friend moves away or a coworker takes a new job, I wish I had someone who would promise to always be there. This is someone like a husband. Another person said, I just keep wondering, what if God's plan for me is to be single for the rest of my life? And I think, if this is your best for me, I don't know if I want it. Another person said, when it's really bad, 
I wrestle with the question, is there something wrong with me? Why can't I be loved? There's a lot of shame associated with singleness in our culture. Because it forces us to answer the question, why am I single and other people aren't? And it doesn't matter that the answer to the question is usually, in reality, just circumstantial. You just haven't met someone that you wanted to marry yet. Even with that, you, you feel like you know, there must be some explanation, something about me that explains why I'm not married, and so you feel shame. Or, or maybe you feel like it's God's fault, that God's abandoned you. I mean, he knows just how much you want to be married. Like, why, why would he give you such a strong desire and then not fulfill it? And, and you, you've prayed, and you've pleaded, and you've been good, and you've bargained, and, and so you think that maybe I'm single because God doesn't really care so much about me and my needs. So you blame yourself. You blame God. Maybe you blame those idiot guys who won't ask you out for good measure. And then when you're in all this turmoil, you feel even more shame because you're not content with the life God gave you. And you feel like, well, if I were a better Christian, I probably wouldn't be you know, struggling with my singleness so much, but you are. Look at verse 12 again. Jesus said, there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. We're going to talk more next week about what it means to be single for the sake of the kingdom. But for now, I I just want us to ponder, what was Jesus feeling when he said these words? You ever ask that question? Because I think that Jesus had to have been thinking about his own situation at this moment. Because at this point, it's not like singleness has taken root in the Christian movement. It's not like after the resurrection when there are lots of single people in the church. At this point, there's really only one guy in this movement who's single, and it's Jesus. At this point, he is the eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. He's talking about himself. Jesus was a lifelong single man, never had a wife, never had sex, never had kids, in a culture when it was really weird for a 30-something-year-old to not have those things. You ever wondered, was it hard for Jesus to be single? Like, you might think, you know what, Jesus was God, and he knew what he was doing, he had this big assignment, he understood, you know, why, why things were going this way. He probably didn't struggle with that. He got it. But are you sure? Like, like Jesus was fully human. Fully human. That means that he had needs for deep relationships, just like you and I do. He had sexual desires, just like you and I do. He, he felt the sting of being judged by other people, just like you and I do. And we've got stories about Jesus where he is deeply grieved by the loss of someone in his life where he's weighed down by loneliness, even moments where he feels abandoned by his father. I want you to picture Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's weeping in the middle of a sleepless night, and his friends are oblivious to how much pain he's in. And he's crying out, Father, is there another way? Like, is there another path? Does this have to be my assignment in life? When you cry out those same things to Jesus, you've got to understand, he knows He knows exactly what it's like from personal experience. And when you cry out, he doesn't shame you. He sympathizes with you. You have to understand there is nothing wrong with grieving the life that might have been. It's not a sin to be sad or angry or afraid or confused. God's not telling you, you know, you got to get all this stuff in your heart sorted out before you talk to him. It's not a sign that you're being unfaithful that being single hurts. The most faithful person in the world, Jesus, wept over how painful his life was. And you don't have to be content if contentment means never feeling like life is hard or that it's not the life that you hope for. 
Here, here's the crazy thing too. Mourning over the life that you wish you had and enjoying the life that you actually have are not mutually exclusive. It is not an either or. Sometimes the emotional options that we're given feel so stunted and simplistic as if your heart can't break and thank God for the exact same thing. As if you, uh, lament and praise can't come out of the same mouth. As if contentment and restlessness can't exist in the same soul at the same time. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about the benefits of being single. And how beautiful it is when someone embraces their singleness as a gift from God. But even with that, that doesn't negate the difficulty of it. We can weep and we can celebrate over the same circumstances. And here's the reason why we can do that. Because of, of what we're going to remember right now as we celebrate communion. When Jesus went to the cross, he wept for us so that he could wipe away our tears. He became lonely for us so that we might be welcomed in. He took on our shame so that he could take it away. And we know that if Jesus did that for us, that we can actually trust him with our lives. That Jesus welcomes you to his table. Even if you have to come weeping and wrestling, it's okay. He wants to talk with you about those things. He wants to have a meal with you and discuss them. And he's going to listen to whatever's on your heart. And then he's going to remind you as he hands you the bread and the cup that you are not forsaken. You are not forgotten. You, you are pursued. You are desired. You are delighted in. He's going to say to you, you are mine. Let's pray. Jesus, we need to hear that, that you pursue us and you love us and that we belong to you and to your family. God, we pray that you would make our church exactly that, the family of God, where people find a home no matter what their circumstance in life is, and where people are honored and delighted in for exactly who you've made them to be. God, we pray now that as we celebrate at your table, that you would meet us here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.